Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about local energy, local solar, local batteries, microgrids could transform global economies, household budgets, and disrupt the existing energy incumbent. What is local energy? What is the pathway to get there? And what are the benefits? And what could the future world look like? Our guest is Bill Nussie. Bill has been a tech CEO, a venture capitalist. And for the last few years, Bill has leaned into energy, traveling the world, interviewing executives to understand the transformation that is before us and the opportunities for the energy community and the world at large. This story culminates in a trillion dollar disruption of which the energy trading community will play a big part. Bill has his own podcast, Freeing Energy, and is the author of the recent book, Freeing Energy, how innovators are using local scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from the outside in. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Bill, welcome to the show. Great to be here, man. I'm really excited to talk to you. Some really fun things going on. It'll be a great conversation. Me too. We're talking about the coming disruption through distributed generation, through local energy. And this, again, is one of those stories that kind of starts a bit small, but has enormous ramifications, not just for the energy industry, but for the global economy, for developed countries and developing countries. But there's a, quite a path to get there. Um, before we sort of dig into what you mean by local energy and distributed generation, what is the challenge? What is the problem right now in brief with, as you describe it in your book, the, the big grid? Yeah, I think most people are feeling some urgency that we need to shift the world's economy and society away from fossil fuels, you know, trans transportation, particularly the electric grid. And these are together contributing massively to greenhouse gases, which most people think is creating this, this crazy weather we're seeing and it's going to get worse. And so the current systems to address that are failing us. You know, I, I watched uh, with eagerness as COP26 took place in Glasgow, and I was very unhappy and disappointed with the tepid decisions and commitments that came out of that. And you know, I live in the U.S., and that's even worse. So maybe COP26 was a huge win by comparison globally, but uh, we are just not making the progress. And And even the things that the most aggressive and visionary leaders are talking about are still not enough. We We hear from the IPCC that we have this decade to make the changes to really ward off the biggest consequences of greenhouse gas growth. Uh, and yet, in the U.S. at least, you know, we're talking about things like, well, we need to build more transmission. Well, guess what? You know, the largest uh, regional transmission operator in the U.S. just announced a two-year hiatus, and they won't be approving any new projects till 2027. And, you know, you a lot of people in the U.S., including the government, think nuclear is the answer. We can't even get a new pilot plant live by the end of the decade, let alone build out hundreds of plants. Mm. And why people are so focused on these things when we can just build solar everywhere immediately starting tomorrow, yet there's not a single large-scale focus from any government or any really serious outspoken leaders on how, why, why we have a solution that's working remarkably well today. It's growing quickly, easy to do. 
And yet that's not a key central part of anybody's plan. That's the opportunity to address climate change more aggressively. And I think in this book I wrote, maybe one of the biggest business opportunities in history. Because that's it. Even if you were to sort of, okay, let's just set aside emissions, climate. I mean, it's obviously a big thing to set aside, but just in a theoretical world, you set that aside. And that that is not a, a driving factor. You're left with still this strange scenario where there is an incredible technology available and it's increasingly being developed that can take you from the current big grid setup. And again, controlling for climate change, which has inherent challenges about how it is getting energy to people, the fragility of it, it's aging, the costs of it. So even in the absence of a climate change requirement, which is, of course, incredibly important, you've still kind of got these inherent issues with the current system and a technology available that were it to be deployed in the right way would dramatically transform both the cost as well as the uh, convenience, the, the utility of the how we get power into our homes. Well, we, we can talk a lot about it, but you know, we've been building the same system for a century. And I include in the broad energy category, oil and gas, as well as electricity. You know, electricity in particular has barely changed. And so what you have is arguably the largest industry in the world at, at $2 trillion of revenue a year in electricity and about $4 trillion a year for oil and gas, again, depending how you measure it, but arguably the largest industry in the world that has been consistently profitable and in the case of oil and gas, incredibly powerful politically, geopolitically. So even the most well-intentioned executives there, uh, shareholders there, want to take it slowly because this happens quickly. Their entire businesses, uh, particularly in electricity, will be disrupted. And so I, I don't have this vision of you know utility executives sitting there wringing their hands and laughing with a snarl in their voice that hey we're going to take over and and put profits first I, but i think that the people that i've interviewed for my book they they believe and i think with reason that they're doing the right thing they don't want to have the grid break down as we've seen it happen in the us and places for trying to meddle with it quickly but they have every single economic reason to slow the changes that are needed and they have 100 years literally of having to take no risks. So they just have no culture, no way of thinking at all about how to embrace the necessary changes, disruptions, risks that must happen. And, and, and electricity, competition, economics, and technology will make this happen. That's the biggest irony. And that's really the biggest thing about my book is while politicians and world leaders have largely failed us to, to embrace this really obvious thing, sort of dollars and cents are going to drive it. Uh, just like dollars and cents have driven the breakup of the U.S. Uh, telecom monopolies, uh, like it's uh, created the rise of the internet and personal computing and smartphones. These are all, in the end, technology changes as, that are accelerated by superior economics. And we'll see that exact same driver uh, changing uh, the energy landscape. And I believe that the small-scale stuff we'll talk about today is actually the most disruptive part. And it's cool if you're a business person, because nobody sees it coming, and that's an opportunity. Mm. And, and just before we move on to that, what is local energy? This is also very much, you know, it's a global picture, right? That's sort of the old map of how energy is produced and power is delivered to homes is pretty consistent on a global basis, certainly in developed economies. 
as everywhere I went, and I was surprised, I didn't expect it, that in the electricity business, the model's the same. They're all largely monopoly business models in every country in the world, whether it's Africa or it's the US or Europe. Uh, some of them are state-owned, but they're all run the same way. And that model should be applauded. It, it was created by and, and made popular by a guy named Sam Insel, who I talk about in my book. It was a, the secretary to Thomas Edison. And Insel went on to become a great executive in his own right and convinced the US, uh, which was then replicated around the world, that despite the US fervor against the monopolies of the day, the, the sugar monopolies, the, the railroad monopolies, US citizens were sick of monopolies. FDR got into office on the back of people being sick of monopolies. Sam Insel convinced the, war, the country, including FDR, that there was one area that still needed to be in monopoly, and that was electricity. And as far as I know, in the US, the only monopolies that we still have that are regulated and sanctioned by the government are electricity, gambling, and alcohol. Uh, everything else has been open to generally competitive markets. And I think that's the reason that electricity has remained so stagnant technically and why it's, uh, for better or for worse, incredibly resistive to any kind of change, uh, including renewables and particularly about small-scale local energy systems. Yeah. Very resistive to it. Okay, so let's let's move to what do you mean by by local energy? You know, what does that entail? And and I found your book fascinating on sort of this sort of drumbeat throughout that it's you know we're talking about a technology here, not a fuel, so to speak, right? Can you just dig into what, what you mean by local energy? Well, I started writing this book and I was trying to figure out as an entrepreneur, you know, I've built companies my whole life and 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 been in the tech space and I was trying to find out what entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, mavericks could do in the electricity space because I felt that was the the greatest, most um, uh, urgent area of change. And I became pretty depressed, Paul, because I'm reading about all the regulations and the resistance to change. And it was a couple of years into it that I stumbled into this idea that small-scale energy systems, rooftop solar, community solar, microgrids, these systems were on track and have, in many cases have since become cheaper than the big grid alternatives that we otherwise rely on. And so uh, this idea was born. And because I spent a lot of the companies I've built and grown had something to do with marketing, I figured we needed to brand it. And I went out, I didn't make up the term local energy, but I went and sourced lots of terms. And the first terms that came up were the ones that people use most often today, like DERs, distributed energy resources, or behind the meter. These are, are, are non-wire non -wire alternatives. But the problem is that these words are all industry inside words. They all represent sort of the incumbent's view of this. And none of them captured what I think is most important about local energy, which is it's not just that this is electricity generated very close to where it's consumed, which has a tremendous number of benefits we can discuss, but the really key difference is who owns it, who controls it. And in the case of local energy, I also include that it's it's owned and controlled by the families and the houses and the apartments and the communities and the towns and the schools. The, the people that consume the electricity are also the ones that own its generation. And so one of my favorite explanations is it's like farm to table for electrons. And that seems to capture people's imagination, mm -hmm. at least in the US. It has a sense of completeness and local control that uh, that sort of embodies for me the ethos of local energy. 
Yeah. You you spent a lot of time on this journey. And, and if you could just sort of tell us a story perhaps about, you know, in, in the future, what a, what a household's interaction and relationship to that local energy might look like, for example. In the final parts of the book, I, 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 in the earlier versions, I actually had a very broad description, I should say deep description of what the future homes and apartment buildings and campuses would look like, but it was a little bit too squishy if you, if that has meaning. <laughs> so I stuck to harder, some more specific projections, but I'll tell you, it's a very exciting vision for me. You know, when people think about solar panels on the roof today or in a field next to their house, they quickly get to this point where they get to economics and they say, well, it, it only makes so much sense to put so much on there. I'm limited by how much space I have on my roof. And this, of course, is referring to people uh, who are fortunate enough to have homes where they can put that uh, on the roof. There's other options like community solar if you don't have a roof. But in all cases, they get back to this, well, it costs this much and the grid costs this much. And and they get they stop there. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But look at look where solar's come down in the last 10, 20 years. It's come down by um, it's 10% of what it used to cost. And people's imagination just stops there. Well, but what if it goes down uh, another 80% and it costs a fraction of what it costs today. And if you ask people about that, they just say, no, it's, it's as cheap as it's going to get. But yet, if you look at every single expert's opinion from investment banks to academics, they all say that small scale energy is going to get way cheaper. And so the vision of the future accounts for the fact that it's going to be so inexpensive to have your house be solar, not just your roof, but your windows. And I'm talking to an entrepreneur uh, next week who's got an absolutely breakthrough way to make windows generate solar energy. Not one of these science experiments we read about in Wired Magazine, but actual commercial ready contracts in place, incredibly efficient and cheap solar uh, windows. And and we're going to see solar walls. We're going to see solar driveways if you live in suburbia like I do. We're going to see, see solar walkways, solar uh, outbuildings. And so all these surfaces are going to generate electricity. If you happen to live in a very inefficient house, it may not be enough, but in almost all houses that are going to get built and most that have been built recently, you're going to have more than enough electricity to power the house. But then you get to the problem of, well, how do I power the house when it's nighttime? Well, again, the same technology curves of mass production are applying to batteries, both short-term batteries like lithium ion or hopefully lithium ion phosphate, lithium phosphate, iron phosphate, but some kind of short-term chemistry and then a whole range of longer-term chemistries uh, that'll complement that. So if you have a week of rainy days, you still have plenty of electricity stored. Or if you live in the in London and you know it's rainy all the time, just kidding. <laughs> you can create a system where your house is or your your uh, your neighborhood is generating all the electricity that it needs. And here's the funny part that idealists miss is that you still want to be connected to the grid. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, not just as a backup, but because you can trade with your neighbors can trade with uh, large companies on the periphery of your neighborhood. And so the grid is, the physical grid, I think, is incredibly important in every scenario in the future. For people who want to get off the grid because it's a romantic notion or they don't like being a part of the big system, they'll have very good options. Mm. But for those of us that just want to sort of have the most cost-effective, resilient electricity possible, being on the grid will actually make a lot of sense. And um, But there's so many ways, if you do want to go off grid, you can do it that are clean and kind of cool that will create new business models. But this is just going to be, and once you start having electrically independent homes or that can be electrically independent, 
new businesses are going to spawn like crazy. And in the book, I talk about 50 new multi-billion dollar markets that will emerge as a result of this transition to this uh, future local energy home. Because mm. you described this as a, I think it's a $23 trillion market, if not 30. And and this is where sort of this disruption is, this, this wholesale change of reorganization about how the fund, one of the fundamental inputs for anything, any business is obviously power fuel and which we presume in the future will be more in the form of electron than in in the form of a hydrocarbon but obviously there's a lot of kind of headwinds and breaks that is that 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 either will retard or accelerate this future you describe before we sort of talk about kind of the future obviously what has happened despite a lack of governmental support a lack of regulatory support, and certainly potentially a lack of support, well, a lack of support by the existing incumbents. Now, I, I set aside oil and gas businesses that are leading into this, as you highlight in the book. But you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the innovation and development landscape. Can you, I, we're, we're at a point where renewables are, you know, have parity in terms of cost with the grid, um, the energy that it produces. Um, I know your, your future predictions are that's going to be much less. But can you just talk to us, how did we get to where we are at the moment? And you describe it in, in the, I guess, in, in terminology of your book, it's the first and second order developments. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I, I interviewed a lot of uh, investors, particularly venture capitalists, but also government officials, policymakers, to understand how they viewed the progression of innovation that is driving not just local energy, but the entire shift to renewables. And I was pretty surprised that people conflated, confused, and sort of just threw in a bucket and mix it up, but are fundamentally very different business models uh, for this transition. And to help, if I was able to, to help the conversation be a little more specific, a little more informed, and save some wasted time thinking through what works and what doesn't work, I created this thought model I call the five orders. You know, I used to be a professional strategist. Uh, I used to work briefly for McKinsey. And I, uh, after I sold my company to IBM, I ran strategy for the CEO and SVPs to help IBM figure out where to go in the future. So I, I love personally thinking about how do you create a mental model or a structured thinking approach, a framework to where technology-driven transitions will go and, and what steps they'll take along the way. And so this five-order model starts with the first order, which is components. Uh, just very briefly, the second order is uh, integrations, the third order is services, the fourth order are platforms, and the fifth order is disruptions. And we can talk about them as much as you like, but the first order is really where we are today for the most part. And these are components. And so, and if you read about the industry, usually we're talking about components. We're talking about solar panels and wind turbines and inverters and transmission lines. These are individual things that are made in case of solar in factories and batteries in factories. But they're single entities that the more you make, the cheaper they get. And it's uh, this this part of the industry, for better or worse, uh, has been dominated uh, in the last decade by China, which is fascinating and, and why. And I went to China to understand why. Uh, and then I think we're slowly moving into the second order world uh, where a lot of money is flowing into taking these components and wiring them together in creative ways to create new products that one plus one plus one is equal to 10 kind of surprisingly innovative second order products. And and that's where, and, and I found that really fascinating and a useful construct. That's where we're starting to see, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, it was, you were a solar company or a solar panel manufacturer. 
right? And now, you know, we've done searches. I remember like, you know, eight years ago, building building a, a very hopeful nascent industry in Mexico for, for solar, which is somewhat stagnated as a result of politics. But that's that second order is when we're starting to see what we have seen over the last few years, which is, you know, large oil and gas, different industry players coming in, whether it's from the automotive industry, whether it's from oil and gas, you know, where other people are starting to to see the the lifeboat in some cases or the opportunity for others. One of my favorite stories that highlights this this part of the transition, uh, I like to point to Tesla in a lot of ways in this particular example. You think back when Musk and team were trying to create a new electric car, and of course, Ford and others had tried. Thomas Edison actually had a very well-funded electric car business, which uh, ultimately was overshadowed and beaten out by his uh, one of his protégés, uh, Henry Ford. So electric cars are not a new idea, and and me, most people had written them off. There was heavy looking, uh, heavy look at hydrogen powered cars, but Tesla managed to create this this Roadster, then the Model S, and ultimately the Model Three. And these these cars have absolutely transformed the world, and they have set a new pace for the shift to electric vehicles. But think about this, when Musk and team were putting together the first widely available car, which is the Model S, they had, and this is a really great example of second order innovations. People don't stop and think that Musk didn't have some new battery that no one had ever had before. In fact, he was using off the shelf laptop batteries, which he was largely derided for. People laughed at him for the idea of using laptop batteries. He had a slightly better way of building a, an, a motor but that didn't make or break the car. In fact, some of the things that were really innovative as patents, they just basically let other people use. So you think back when they're designing this car that has in his, historically has obviously changed the world, there was nothing that Tesla had that wasn't equally available at the time to Ford, General Motors, BMW, or anybody else. 100% of the parts that made up the Tesla Model S that changed the world were available to every other car manufacturer in the world. And when you get your head around that, you realize that the second order, the opportunity for second order innovations is absolutely remarkable. The ability to take off-the-shelf parts and put them together in new ways is completely undervalued by most investors and prognosticators. But yet that's where I would argue some of the greatest innovation and disruption is going to occur. And we are right in the hot middle of that right now. I think the bulk of the, the money for the next two to five years is going to be around integrations in, in addition to building out factories to make cell, solar cells and batteries. Mm. Okay, perfect. So now I want to, you know, we're going to end up on what this disruption might look like and talk about your third, fourth and fifth orders. But I, I want to sort of we pause right now at, at 2022 or there or thereabouts and talk about kind of where the, the buckets of headwinds are. And the first one is... Uh, just, I just want to touch on technology because it's so fascinating having someone who spent so much time looking so broadly at this sector. When you take technology, which of the sort of the twin forces of efficiency and cost do you think the most strides will be made? For example, on the solar panel, this might sound a really stupid question, I'm sorry, but you know, are we going to see orders of magnitude more efficient solar panels or they just are we reaching a natural chemical limit, and it's just going to be lowering costs and, and and emphasis going into things like like you mentioned, which I find fascinating. You know, making them tougher so they can be pavements. I think, th and that's a great question, and it's another one that I really dive into in the book because 
I think the status quo, this, the general perception on this is is missing the deeper points. You know, in the U.S., when you put solar, particularly small-scale solar, on a roof, you're going to pay about $3 U.S. a watt. If you go to Australia, you buy the same solar panel, same manufacturer, same SKU, put the same inverter, same wires, and you put that on an Australian roof, that's going to cost you about $1.10 in U.S. dollars for the same hardware. And when you think about the price lowering on these small-scale systems, what you're doing in the U.S., and I think to a fairly large degree in the U.K. as well, is that you're cutting out a huge amount of bureaucracy, a huge amount of red tape. Australia has decided as a country to streamline this, and they cut out two-thirds of the cost. So I um, I think that the largest technology limits are, have nothing to do with solar panels becoming more efficient. And, and the short answer is they won't become much more efficient. They don't need to at all. The cost of the solar panels on a residential build in the U.S. is something like 10%, 15% of the total cost. Uh, labor is a much larger part of the cost, for example, um, to get on the roof and install it or punch holes in a field and the bury poles and put the solar panels on. That's the larger part of the cost. So we don't need any kind of large improvements in efficiency at all to see the cost of solar decline massively. Heck, if we can get to the UK and the US half the price, uh, the gap between us and Australia, it's going to be unstoppable, Mm. just like it is in Australia. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, so the, thanks for that. So the second of my sort of list here of things that are challenges, which you highlight again in the book, is ultimately around policies and politics. And we're going to come on to public perception. But you face an environment at the moment where in many places around the world, you've got policies there that are there designed at best to ensure the stability of the grid and are focused on the management, you know, of the existing system. At worst, they're there designed to throw up protective barriers and moats and so forth to to ensure those incumbents continue to exist. And and I, I and permit me a story, you and I spoke about this um, beforehand, you know, over a number of weeks, but, you know, we Personally, we we bought some land north of of Houston with a view to putting a house on it at some point. It was no, it was no sort of, um, or it was probably more out of pure economics than anything that it it was going to be prohibitively expensive to run, to connect it to the grid. So the idea came up that you know you and I discussed this: could we just take it off grid with solar and batteries? And what was fascinating on that journey, which you did highlight to me. There is only one provider I can find in in Texas that does this, True Texas Solar, and shout out to them. They're not sponsoring me. (laughs) But the first thing the the, the guy said was, look, I need to phone around the local municipalities, the county, to understand whether this is even legal, right? Because the local monopoly on power production there presumably doesn't want you you going off grid. So you've got, and there's a, that's a very micro-level story, but you, you've just got a, a weight of legislation that 
is designed to protect the current system that is preventing this local energy opportunity. It reminds me a lot, Paul, of the early internet days. Back in uh, 95, my wife and I created a the first one of the first interactive online uh, websites for buying cruises. And uh, the, there was there were very few interactive websites at all at the time. Uh, you couldn't purchase anything online at the time because there was no SSL and security. But we we created a site that was uh, an interactive website where you could find out which cruise you want and purchase it online. It was pretty bleeding edge. And I remember, you know, there's no such thing as data centers. There was no cloud. So we had to buy a computer and we had to get it wired into the Internet from our house. And I the story is almost identical to what you're saying about your experience of buying an off-grid house or facilitating an off-grid in Texas. We couldn't find anyone that could wire high-speed internet to our our house. No one knew if it was legal to tie into the internet. And, you know, you fast forward to 20 years later, and of course it's trivial, you know, all you have to do is get a $50 cell phone, mobile phone, and you can be on the internet. But your aspiration in Texas is the bleeding edge. But I want to remind you that that's just because you're a pioneer. In five or 10 years, it will be easy. It'll be straightforward. And there might be some resistance from people to throw up more roadblocks legally. But in the end, one thing, and I say this, uh, talk to a lot of Amer- I'm American. I talk to a lot of Americans. And there's, one, there's a lot of things uh, you can say good and bad Ameri- about Americans. But one thing that I, th- I think is uniquely American or is one of the most consistent aspects of Americans is you can't tell people who live in this country that they're going to spend more money to support the government or to support a corporation. There's a, whether you're a liberal or conservative, you have sort of, you feel like you have this right to have, to be able to save yourself money. And so right now when it's grid parity with local energy or an off-grid system, like you're going to build, people don't have a lot of passion for it. But when you go out five, 10 years, and it's so obviously so much cheaper to build the system you're envisioning there at your home in Texas, the politicians are just going to cave and they're going to quit listening to the utilities and the incumbents and the status quo. But there is a challenge. And, and I think sort of leading into it, what you're asking about is how much power do utilities have to slow this? And two facts that no one in the industry seems to be aware of. And so I have multiple citations on government data sources for the U.S. that back up the statements I'm about to make because they sound crazy. But these rock solid facts, if you look at all of the major SIC codes, the, gov- the, the industry codes we use in the U.S., from uh, swimming pool manufacturers to dental offices to whatever, the lowest research and development budget of any SIC code in the United States is electric utilities. They spend less than one-tenth of 1% of their money on research and development and innovation. Switch the, switch the column, and if you look at lobbying money of all the industries in the United States, Electric utilities are arguably the largest spenders on lobbying at the state and federal level than any other industry, larger than pharma, larger than insurance, larger than financial services. And those two facts kind of paint a picture of what we're up against to get these changes. But in the, in the medium term, the sheer opportunity to have cheaper, better solutions is going to over, overweight that, um, that incumbency. And uh, one final story on this to drive it home uh, as uh, some of uh, a lot of your listeners who don't live in the United States may have observed about our fine country, as we seem to be in a bit of a partisan spat these days, putting it as mildly as I possibly can. 
and the Republicans have, for whatever reason, done a 180, have completely changed their position on clean energy from about 15 years ago, where they were some, they were very supportive of solar and wind, and they've just done a complete change. They largely resist it now. And in case after case, you can find the uh, utilities lobbying money or, or maybe just great arguments, but whatever reason, the, the uh, Republican politicians tend to very strongly support the point of view of utilities. And in Florida, some really good investigative journalism found that a law that was passed by both houses of the Florida legislator uh, that basically would make rooftop solar so expensive is it would shut down the entire industry within a matter of weeks. And the journalists found that the, the word for word of the law came from an email sent from the utilities to the sponsor. Apologies if I got the story wrong, but I'm, that's what I recall the details being. Florida is kind of famous for these crazy utility meets legislator stories more than almost any other state in the country. And so everyone assumed that when Governor DeSantis, who's one of the leading Republican voices uh, in the country, he was, of course, going to stamp it. But what he heard was poll after poll that said 85 percent of Floridians wanted rooftop solar. Eighty five percent wanted it. So he actually did the unthinkable for traditional Republican points of view, and he vetoed that bill. And so this is the first strong sign that public sentiment for local energy, people don't care as much about a giant solar field, solar plant in a field or wind turbines off their coast, but they passionately want local energy. And this is the first sign that regardless of your politics, local energy is going to win because people want it. So this decades of resistance by utilities is there's a good chance that in the next couple of years, we're going to start to see that ability to slow it down, uh, start to wane. And what people want, they want cheap, clean, resilient electricity uh, in their communities, in their homes, they're going to win. I hope it takes mm. five years and not 15. And I, I'm, I'm optimistic. It's, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because, um, well, firstly, it's nice to be called a pioneer. I'm not. I'm just too, uh, I just can't afford to connect the house to the grid, the, the, how many yards it is. But it, was a, it has been, that has been a really high, fascinating journey that you, you've helped me on public perception right so you this is this you highlight this in the book as one of the sort of there's lots of these misconceptions about local energy about renewables and part of it is frankly you know we're talking openly it's <laughs> it is a framing issue where you know you've got this kind of anti you know it, this the whole renewable sector has been framed largely by both sides as a as a solution to climate change which it undoubtedly is, but that has that has a lot of political ramifications and trigger th aspects to it. That means it's a bit of a political football. There's a you know the, as you've kind of slowly highlighted throughout this conversation in the book, the reality is when you start talking about costs and convenience and stability and, and, and you know in comparison to the existing setup, I assume that would accelerate public perception and desire to have local energy, to have solar in their communities, on their roofs, batteries in their garages or community batteries, so that actually you are lowering a community's cost for power in a moment when we are seeing the effects of an energy crisis. And ultimately, as on other episodes I've done, we're doing at the moment, you know, energy translates directly into food costs and other household budget items, right? Right. And I think that the broader political landscape for energy, grid scale energy will continue to be a rough 
tumble. And and that is what food processing and large-scale industrial processes will require. So I am sad to say that I don't think the local energy revolution, as I call it, will have any immediate or even midterm effect on industrial processing costs, uh, unfortunately, particularly in Europe. But where local energy makes a big difference is for people that I like to think of lovingly as voters. And it is one of the biggest ironies for me, when you ultimately build that off-grid system that you're going to do at your house, and I had solar put on my roof here in in the U.S. in the state of Georgia, out in the town of Atlanta, every time we put a megawatt or a kilowatt up of this type system, we're actually employing 10 times more people than if we go out into a giant field in the middle of nowhere and install solar or wind. And And I think that's another point that I wanted to mention today was that the political will towards creating jobs. In fact, I'm not sure there's more political alignment among all parties than creating jobs. I've never seen a statement in the political landscape that recognizes that local energy creates far, far, far more jobs. But I'll put that aside. What's happening in Texas particularly, and also in California, uh, the consequences of the big grids failures are starting to play out in a very real way for people. So in Texas, as you're probably aware, last winter, uh, they or, having lived through it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They uh, they um, had an outage for uh, three or four days during a cold snap, which resulted in um, uh, hundreds of people dying. And wildfires in California are taking out the grid, and people that require electricity for medical equipment, etc., are are sometimes dying because of this. Um, in Puerto Rico, which is you know, uh, people forget. Sadly, it's part of the United States. 3,000 people died after Hurricane Maria took out the entire island's grid for between three and nine months, depending on where you lived. 3,000 people died, and it was all traceable to the lack of electricity. And so these stories are galvanizing people. And by the way, for folks that are listening in Europe, the U.S., despite the many technical innovations, our grid is so behind that we actually have far more outages as U.S. Uh, people than than anyone in Europe experience, or in most places in Europe are experienced. So it's just it's a rickety system here, and I think that's going to make U.S. Uh, residents focus on local energy because that is the single fastest, bestest, cheapest way to create resiliency. So not only are you going to save mm-hmm. money, you're actually going to have some resiliency against the increasingly craziness of the the large grid. And and I think if we come back in two months here in 2022, and we're at the end of the summer, I think we're going to have seen a lot of widespread outages in the U.S. because the all the air conditioners turn on because of all the crazy heat we're getting. And that's going to cause outages. And while cold snaps tend to get more press for deaths, uh, deaths from heat exhaustion are just as rampant and will be directly caused by wide-scale grid outages. Um, so again, galvanizing people to go local. Is is that message, are you seeing that message yes. there though? Again, kind yes. of coming back to that framing issue, like yes. this isn't about, you know, lowering greenhouse gas emissions, although that is incredibly important and incredibly important to some people's purchasing choice. But ultimately this, you know, you're seeing, are we seeing it from politicians? This is a technolo- technology solution that will lower our costs, improve grid stability, improve people's back pockets. No, no, yes, yes, no. <laughs> the, you, know, you ask a lot of questions. I think that the awareness of local energy, particularly solar coupled with battery, is taking off. If you 
look at people in Puerto Rico as an example have been impacted the worst. The awareness of solar and battery. I don't. I, I read that. I don't think since like the last two years. I, I don't think any system in Puerto Rico has been installed without a battery because they're so painfully aware of. Uh, even though batteries raise the cost of the system, where they're so painfully aware of extended outages, right? And the the rush in Texas to do solar plus battery is is basically if you try to buy a Powerwall right now, you're waiting. I don't know what it is this particular day, but I'm hearing it's six nine months to get the batteries. And this is even with everyone rushing in to the, provide alternatives to Powerwalls. It's just impossible to get these products because the demand is so high. Same thing in California. So I think public awareness of the resiliency that local energy can provide is really rising and it's mainstream it's a mainstream view mm. in, in places where in texas where some citizens may not be as concerned about climate change as i personally am the motivation could be just as strong or it may be even more strong you know the climate change is existential whereas not being able to do my uh, you know not be able to keep my refrigerator running and keep my children safe is an immediate threat that's galvanizing tremendous number of off-grid uh, not off-grid, but solar plus battery system. So I do think on that particular one, strong yes. Politicians mm. reflecting it, not so much yet. But you, you see time and time again that politicians do not take the stance on local energy they do on the large-scale things. They either are uh, passive about it or even some crazy cases in red states like Florida, they're actively allowing local energy to thrive. Mm. Um, okay, thank you for that. I think that was a really important segment to depress ourselves a little bit before we can look at the bright future. So, you know, your book is entitled, or the subtitle is How Innovators Are Using Local Scale Solar and Batteries to Disrupt Global Energy Industry from the Outside In. Can you take us then now on the journey, the third, fourth, fifth orders, and, and give us some sense of how the order of magnitude that this disruption could be and the opportunity for for all of our listeners wow this is my favorite part man so i'm glad we, we're glad it's on our topics today because the, the title freeing energy is not free energy people confuse it it's freeing energy because what we're doing and particularly in these higher order models is we're freeing energy from the shackles of a century we're freeing it from the shackles of third uh, of fossil fuels we're freeing it from the uh, electric utilities monopolies that occur everywhere in the world. We're freeing it from politics and the slow, painful, largely broken political machine. And that's and that really manifests itself in these third and fourth and fifth orders. So the third order is services. And this is actually really the b most boring of the five, but it's financially one of the most important. Uh, this is where people who take a financial perspective, people who understand in a built infrastructure, oil and gas infrastructure, utility, electric, or bridges and buildings, this is the part where they come in and they make, the scientists have done their part, the, the, the crazy entrepreneurs like Elon Musk have done their part. This is where the finance world thrives, is in the third order. You're taking an asset base and you're turning it into a service stream, a revenue service stream. The biggest, best example on planet Earth is the electric grids. $2 trillion a year. They take expensive assets, which historically were large multi-billion dollar power plants, and turn them into affordable per kilowatt hour purchases by every single person in the in the Europe and the US and many places in the rest of the world. And 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 so that's unfortunately become a pretty boring business. It's so regulated, there's not a lot of opportunities for financial innovators. But once you get outside of that, 
once you start to think about building microgrids and financing them, you think about going to Africa and building off-grid communities uh, because it's impractical and too expensive to bring the grid to some of these communities. This is where the, the transition from innovation to financing and service dreams, incredibly exciting. And I have a lot of friends in finance, and this is where they get really jazzed. The fourth order, and this is where your venture capital folks get really excited. Traditional venture capitalists don't like things that have assets. It slows down product cycles. It, it makes exits take longer. So building a solar cell factory, building out a, you know, a services revenue stream, third order um, kind of model, that's tough for venture capitalists because they don't deal with loans and equity and tax equity and all these other concepts. So the fourth order is where venture capitalists get really excited because in this model, they don't necessarily have to own the assets. And so my favorite example to contextualize fourth order is to talk about ride sharing like Uber and Lyft, right? Uber and Lyft don't own any assets and yet they have revolutionized in the transportation industry and in many places decimated the monopoly protected taxi industry because the service was so compelling, but yet they did all this without owning billions of dollars worth of assets. They even did it without employing hundreds of thousands and millions of people. They did it just by creating a marketplace creatively. And I'm not a full fan of what they've done because they've done a lot of sort of negative things along the way to get to the success they've seen. But the business model transition is where it has strong applicability to energy. And so you start to read, even in outside of this, this industry, you start to read mainstream articles about things like V2G, vehicle to grid. And uh, in the US, the hottest thing right now is this Ford, Ford's new um, 150 pickup truck that- the Lightning, yeah. Yeah, it's powered by batteries. And, and someone asked me the other day, what's the thing that excites you most about the transition to local energy? And I said, the Ford 150 Lightning. And they're like, what? And I said, no, because this is the most mainstream application. Everybody loves pickup trucks, or that's not true, but massive numbers of people love pickup trucks who would never consider next generation energy systems. But if they just look at the Ford 150 on its merits, it can pull more weight. It can accelerate faster. It's cheaper to operate. It's cheaper in the long term to own. And, and so this is this crossover product that we haven't had before. So this is an example it's of- kind of It's kind of emblematic of the, of the discussion in some ways, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, the, the F-150 putting an heuristic hat on here, it's, it's very much seen as kind of the, the everyman's car in North America. It's mm -hmm. a rural car. It's, as you say, it's being, the, the, the adoption rate is incredible because you've got farmers out there saying, this works better for me. It's cheaper. It's more effective at what I need it to do. And, you know, and things like ranges aren't an issue for me, et cetera. So it's, it's that, that, that is kind of analogous to the solar story, which you could suddenly see this sort of, dare I say it, tipping point where suddenly a farmer, this having a local energy supply, my own energy supply is in much more, puts me in far more control, lowers my cost than being connected to the to the grid. But here's the here's the killer part for me is that when I talk to people about the Ford one F one fifty lightning, inevitably someone says, So you can really power your house with this. And that's when I know the world's gonna change. Because people accept and don't get too excited about the electric electric car part unless they've actually driven one, in which case they have to have an electric car, but most people haven't driven one. So they don't know how fun it is to drive, but they do, they're just galvanized by these articles, these, 
these uh these advertisements that Ford does where you see the house lit and it's plugged in the car's power in the house. And this is a perfect fourth order example. The number of companies that can make that experience of taking electricity from the Ford 150's batteries, not just to power your house, but to take it back to the grid, to use it to replace peaker plants. Imagine a world where we have hundreds of thousands of Ford 150 and other cars plugged into the grid at offices or farms where they're not driving them. And instead of turning on incredibly expensive, nasty peaker plants that are powered by fossil fuels, they just drain a little bit of power out of all those batteries. Owners don't even notice it, but yet you alleviate the need for these uh, environmentally nasty power plants, these peaker power plants that keep the grid running and the ability to connect those dots to, to create a marketplace like you know Et Etsy or, or eBay for electricity. This is an entirely brand new market. This is fourth order at its best. We'll see hundreds of companies hundreds of companies thousands. there are lots of lots of traders that we know you know in our community that are been looking at this are looking at this and that opportunity to create you know the the trade between communities trade between buildings balance those microgrids you know there's a phenomenal opportunity for the existing power trading community Bingo. you know that's currently trying to balance that at this the state and the the city level and you know huge opportunity and creating marketplaces for it and understanding those and understanding if you're not in the industry in your industry you don't appreciate that this isn't just a matter of sort of trading electrons you have to have financing and uh, legal protections and you have to have capital available in order to make trades so all this is now in the you know the next five to ten years that skill set not just asset financing like third order stuff but actual sophisticated real-time pricing Mar financial market balancing, these skill sets are about to become critically important. Now, there's a lot of people going after it, including the utilities. So everybody wants to participate in this because, you know, Wall Street and stocks and things like that, this is an exciting area. And who ends up being dominant, whose platforms are used is, a, is really, much, really up for debate. But investors and entrepreneurs love this because this is an opportunity. It's brand new, wide open. And whatever amount of electricity we can trade today, is probably 100,000th of what we'll be trading at this level in 10 or 20 years. We're at the very, very beginnings. And then the last mm. part that I'll just throw in there and go Europe and go Australia is the, these what Europe calls energy communities, um, but broadly the industry refers to as peer-to-peer. -peer. And this is where we get away from uh, even institutional trading and, and sort of being the backstop of the market makers for these trades, but to actually have people be able to trade with each other directly, very much like eBay or a, a flea market as we have here in the US. People just come and swap things for money or f trade things. And so you're, there's a story in my book about one of the leaders in this space called Power Ledger based in Australia, and they're forming markets that are on the fly for electricity trading that are just so cool. They, for example, there's a well-known brewery, big brewer in Australia that allows their customers across regions of the country to contribute some of the electricity that they have, Australian homes, beer customers, to contribute the electricity to the brewer to pay for beer. And so they don't, <laughs> they don't actually change money. They just give them, you know, I'm going to send over 15 kilowatt hours in March to the brewer whose beer I, I like. And then every month I'll get a, a shipment of beer that equals the cost of that. And they call it, this is great, they call it peer to beer. Uh, instead nice. of peer, peer right? So that was a great, we wrapped up our conversation <laughs> today, you know, throwing in peer to beer, uh, I think makes the, the, uh, the, the level of innovation, the level of change, the level of 
integration with our everyday lives, it's a great story that drives home just how different the world's going to be. This isn't a giant nuclear power plant controlled by faceless corporations and, and, and regulated by people we've never heard of and have, could care less what we think. The future is about things like peer-to-peer, -peer, where everyone's mm. involved, and uh, it's all going to be driven by local energy. We're still going to need large-scale energy systems. We're still going to need grids. We're still going to need some monopolies to keep those wires running when working, when storms hit. But I think the, uh, the future for entrepreneurs, for legislators, and particularly for families like yours and mine is going to be generating it locally and consuming it locally and having control for the first time in the history of the world over the, the energy that, we, uh, that is so important in our lives. Yeah, well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I, you know, I think it really hits home when you talk about the, the, the trading opportunity, especially for this community. And you know, who knows who will, you know, who will succeed in that, who wins that, right, or which companies win that, because it might not, you know, as you say, it's it could be Ford, right, and it could be Amazon, right, or it could be whoever, whomever. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be some of the people that listen to your podcast, and they're going to get a sense by hopefully being on the bleeding edge by the folks you're bringing on and thinking about this and they, they, they have the, they could own it. So hopefully the, the couple of the pioneers will get out in front and take it over because frankly, I would trust yeah. the people who are keeping the systems working today to keep the future systems working. Those are the ones I trust the most. So hopefully your, your, your community, your listeners will be the ones that make it happen. Yeah. And I want to take that opportunity to both direct people to your podcast, Freeing Energy, which they can find on all podcast platforms, where you're talking more in depth on these subjects, talking to industry experts, uh, technologists, venture capitalists, etc. So I want to encourage people to go there. And also to your book, published in 2001, now available in all formats, audio book. Sorry, 2021. <laughs> Not it's a new book. Just want to make uh, everyone sure it's a new book. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a new book available in all formats, and it's called Freeing Energy. And I want to encourage people to get that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks, you know, Bill, thanks for your time. Thanks again. This is so fun. I love this conversation, Paul. It's great to, it's an honor to be part of your series. And I hope that some people get excited about local energy as much as you and I are. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.